I don't know about you guys, but for me, 2020 has been kind of a struggle. You know, it's, and and I I sense I'm not alone here. I see these things uh, online, I see headlines, I see people's posts on social media. And when it comes to posts on social media, I've got to say, it's been a trying time where businesses have struggled, families have struggled, people have struggled, entire nations have struggled. One thing that hasn't struggled is the meme. The, the image with a pithy caption that you see on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever. And I, they've really they've helped me get by. These goofy memes about 2020 and what a dumpster fire it is. And my favorite ones are the ones that are two panel. And on one side is my plans. And then the other side is 2020. Uh, you know, there's the very obvious ones like my plans. And you've got a picture of... Uh, the Titanic, and DiCaprio's out there with his hands up, and he's the king of the world, and then it says 2020, and there's an iceberg. And, but what's so beautiful is how very obscure they get. My favorite one is Theo from The Cosby Show, Malcolm Jamel Warner, and the first one, it says, my plans, and it, I don't know if you remember this episode, I remember them all. It's a picture of him holding this designer shirt he wanted really badly, and of course his sister said, I can make you one identical to it, and it says 2020, and he's wearing the shirt, and one sleeve goes past his hand, and one goes up here, and he's going, ah! And, of course, there's another very good one, uh, the guy bringing the chili into the office, my plans, and then 2020, and the chili is all over the ground. you got to laugh, because it's a fact that our plans can be derailed by things that are a lot less powerful than a global pandemic. Right? It's been said, it's not in the scriptures, but it's been said, we make plans and God's laughs. It is in the scripture in Psalm 16, uh, or rather in Proverbs 16:9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That we feel like we're in control until something reminds us that we're not. But the beautiful flip side of that is that none of this applies then to God. That his plans are absolutely unaffected by outside forces. That our God's plans are not in the least bit foiled or even altered when things happen that throw us completely for a loop. And I believe this ought to be a great source of comfort for us. As we watch our fallible human leaders scrambling and and flip-flopping and trying to manage multiple crises at once, all well-looking, kind of calm, cool, and collected, and like they know what they're doing. No one could know exactly what they're doing. And as we see this happen, a lot of people are kind of losing faith in, in the whole thing. But for those of us who've put our faith in Christ, who trust a sovereign God, there ought to be hope and comfort and optimism in recognizing that not only the present but the future of this land and this planet are in the hands of a sovereign and mighty God. And that is a reason to give thanks. In fact, that's what's going on here in Ephesians. Paul started by saying, I'm Paul, you're the Ephesians, and then he just launched into this long, blessed be the Lord, God our Father, benediction, doxology, praise thing. We're going to look at verses 7 through 10 today. We looked, it's all one sentence we said. When we look at this, we, we saw last week that the first reason, reason number one to bless God, to praise God, was that he chose us from before the foundation of the world in Christ to be holy and blameless before him. Here we see that reason number two to praise God is that he actually follows through on his grand plans. He is the author and the finisher. 
of our faith. And I've often thought that was kind of an awkward way to put it. Finisher, who says that? Well, that's the only way you can identify God in this situation. He starts the thing, he finishes it. Because he is God. He cannot be sidetracked. You and I, you know, we might make big grand plans to do something or to stop doing something, and quickly we realize, ah, forget it. I like doing it or I don't want to do it. Or maybe we start and it's hard and we lose momentum and the thing sort of just fades away and grinds to a halt. But God is not that way. In fact, he begins at the very, very beginning of this book to say, I am going to send a redeemer. And then the entire book is the story of God carrying those plans out, bringing them to bear throughout all of human history, leading up to the very climax of history. And so in verse 7, we read, in him, and who is the him here? Just guess, guys. Yes, yeah, right, yeah, in Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus. In the Bible, the answer is almost always Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. There's a key word here. In him, we have redemption. Redemption, it's kind of a complex word built out of smaller words, but at the root of it is a a really simple word, luo. Three letters, L-U-O. And luo is the first word that Bible college or seminary students learn when they're learning biblical Greek. Because it's a word that doesn't break the rules. You know, like in English, we have I before E except after C, and then the rhyme goes like 45 more minutes telling you all the exceptions to that rule. Well, luo doesn't have any exceptions. So you learn, luo, lue, sue, luaman, lueta, luusa, eloana, eloa. I could go on for like three minutes just going through forms. It's how you learn how the, the verbs work. And it's a perfect word in that way, but it's also perfect that this first word that you learn and around which you kind of learn the language of the New Testament is the center of the New Testament. What the word means is to loose, to untie, to release. And so that kind of idea built up into the word redemption is at the center here of the book of Ephesians as well as it is throughout all of the New Testament. And certainly it is a reason to give God thanks and praise. And, you know, the idea is actually maybe to untie at its core. We were tied up. He came He untied us. He released us. He didn't just open a door and say, come on out. No, at the the heart of this word redemption, uh, both the concept as it is developed in the New Testament and the word itself is the idea of paying a ransom. The payment of a ransom. And I think a lot of people find that a little obscure, a little strange. When we think of Jesus dying on the cross, we think of his victory over death. We think of him... Uh, We think of him going head-to-head with the powers of darkness, but what he's doing is paying a ransom. When I think ransom, I think kidnappers. I think notes that are made out of a bunch of letters cut out of magazines. But when we read in the Scriptures about redemption, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the core of the idea of redemption. And some people, this is getting more and more popular, I've I've mentioned it even in the past year or so, but I feel the need to bring it up again because I hear it more and more, are wanting to take issue with that, with God being the kind of petty God who demands payment before he'll forgive. You know, we say, I can even just forgive somebody without demanding payment. Hey, I scuffed your car, don't worry about it. But at the end of the day, you have to have some kind of payment even if you forgive. 
God is a perfect, holy God. He can't let sin hang there and be in his presence. And so God then must have payment. It's like if we just got a new fence put in. We had like a whole year where we had no fence. It was a little embarrassing, actually. Uh, And Erin got this crazy idea. She's like, what if I write books, but people buy my books, and then I get paid more money? And we were like, oh, let's try that. Uh, And and so we were able to put in the fence. And and, uh, I was thinking the other day about this notion of, of debt and of forgiveness. And I thought, what if someone just drove up and just smashed right through the new fence? And they got out and they were like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And moved with compassion, Aaron and I just said, you know what? We forgive you. Don't worry about it. Well, can't God just do that? Well, no. First of all, if he was going to just leave the wreckage of our sin and lives all around us, we would not be able to be in communion with him because he's perfectly holy. But if we are going to replace the fence, someone's going to pay for it either out of our pocket or the insurance company or the guy who hit it. Someone has to, or, or think of like the housing crisis, right? All these banks, they were all defaulting. They all owed so much money. In fact, uh, Bank of America alone owed $17 million to the American people. And we said, you're too big to fail. We bailed them out. But it's not like the money came from nowhere. Ultimately, the money came from us. It's got to come from somewhere. And so the most merciful, gracious, unbelievable thing that God could do is say, yes, of course, payment must be made, but I will make the payment. Now, when the Gentile Christians in Ephesus were reading this letter and they came across the word redemption, I'm pretty sure they didn't think about the housing crisis, but rather their first thought would be about the idea of redeeming slaves, bond slaves. Because in the Greco-Roman world, that was a fairly common concept. Uh, Slavery in the the Roman world often looked like, I owe a ton of money, I'm in danger of going to debtor's prison, I'm going to make an agreement with you, I'll come and serve as a a household slave until I've kind of worked off this debt. But you could have someone who was a a kinsman, a friend, a family member come, and they could say, I am going to pay the ransom, and I am going to redeem you, and then you will be free. And there were many people who were in this situation because there was such an unjust society. A lot of people were in a horribly deep debt. A lot of people might even be bond slaves because of their parents' debts that they inherited. And spiritually, we kind of have both, right? We inherit our sin debt from Adam and we keep on adding to it, double down, double down, until we are hopelessly in debt. The only thing that might remain for us is the debtor's prison until Jesus comes and says, I will pay the ransom. In fact, in the Old Testament, this is built up as as the plan of redemption is revealed more and more as kind of the the template for us. In Leviticus 25, we read about someone who has sold himself into slavery, how even before the the year of Jubilee, when, when people are released, the kinsman, the kinsman redeemer could come and pay the cost and the person could be free. And God's kind of there going, see, eh? I wanted to put this little kernel in your mind because I am sending my son, Jesus. It's not a new idea in the New Testament. In Old Testament, the the word redemption is fairly common. Same concept, someone released from prison, someone sprung from slavery by the payment of a, a ransom, a debt. Or most frequently, it's used to describe the freeing of a nation of slaves who were set free from Egypt. That's the picture of redemption in the Old Testament referred to again and again and again, what we call the Exodus. 
God's people being led out. Exodus 6.6, we read, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And this is such an amazing and immense thing, and yet it's a picture, a foreshadowing of a far greater exodus that will happen on a far grander scheme. And you say, wait, grander than two million Israelites crossing a sea on dry land with the greatest army in the world on their tail? Yep, bigger than that, certainly. And yet still a wonderful picture for us. So that when we see Jesus come, we say, ah, I see how you're fulfilling the Old Testament types and shadows. In the Old Testament, this great redemption, this great exodus was accompanied by God instituting this whole priestly system of sacrifice so that blood would be shed and and a ransom paid and the people for another year could continue in communion with their God. In the New Testament, the greater exodus, like the old one, is driven by God's grace, but in it we see the one great high priest, Jesus, offering himself as the one great sacrificial lamb once for all, for all of our sins, forever. That is redemption. That is the forgiveness of sins. And this should be the thing that has us full of zeal from the day we learn of it and put our faith in Jesus until the day we die, and then from the day of the resurrection until, like, forever. That we are redeemed. In fact, there's a wonderful hymn I wanted us to sing, Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It, but I thought, ah, it sounds like this. You can't do that without lots and lots of particles. Droplets. That's a droplet hymn. But there's another great one. Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit laid, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That is a beautiful picture of what happens when one puts his or her faith in Jesus Christ. But we're told here that we have redemption. We've gone from the past tense last week to the present tense this week. We we believe, we trust that before the foundation of the world we weren't there, but we trust that God chose us because the scriptures tell us so. We trust that in the future he will come again for his own, because the scriptures tell us so, and he's proven himself faithful. We trust, we believe, and yet now there's something different about the redemption we have in the present. We have it, and we know we have it, because we possess it, and we have received it. Release, not only deliverance from sin's penalty, but from sin's pollution, sin's enslaving power, and ultimately it will be deliverance from sin's very presence. For those who are in Jesus Christ. And again, we have in Him, in whom. This is going to be the thing that continues most consistently through the book of Ephesians. Everything's in Him, in Jesus. It's in Jesus that all of this happens. In fact, the first words of our passage today are, in Him we have redemption. Last week we looked primarily at the work of the Father in redemption. This week we look at primarily the work of the Son uh, in redemption. The Father choosing the Son actually dying on a cross. Next week we will look at the work of the Spirit in sealing us. Not that uh, this is completely uh, apart from one another, uh, but rather all three persons of the Trinity are at work in every aspect of, re- of our redemption. But Christ is central. That is why He is called the Redeemer. 
I know that my Redeemer lives. Job doesn't know it, but he's thinking and speaking of Jesus. Our Redeemer lives, and He is the one in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. We cannot forgive ourselves. We cannot, we cannot find forgiveness or redemption in ourselves. The world's most earnest advice that it gives people is look inside yourself. Look inside your heart. There you'll find truth. There you'll find something worth living for. And it's also the world's most wrong advice. It's terrible advice. Okay, I looked inside myself. I looked inside my heart. What did I find? Sin. What else did I find? That all of my greatest works and all my love and all my altruism were stained with more sin, selfishness, and, and, and all sorts of things that are, are not worth being in the presence of God and not worthy of being a follower of Christ. And yet we are redeemed. We look outside of ourselves. We look to the cross and there we find redemption, forgiveness, and release from prison. The blood of Jesus. And, and notice here that the blood is used to kind of stand in for the whole sacrificial death of Christ on the cross for our sins. J just like the word sword is often used uh, in the New Testament to talk about uh, the, the government and the government's authority. Like behind it is the sword. The sword's the symbol of it. Well, the blood is, is used as just a stand-in for everything Christ endured because it is the most important aspect of all of this. It was the blood that was painted onto the lentils and the doorpost of the homes at that first exodus so that the angel of death would pass over. And it is the blood of Jesus that is applied to us in which we are washed, as we just sung, that causes us to be the children of God. We're adopted by blood. We're blood relatives and adopted at the same time. It's not just by being a big old softy who understands our unique struggles that God is able to forgive us and draw us close to himself. No, it is through something terrible, the, the tearing and puncturing of flesh, the slow suffocation of a man on the cross, the shedding of blood, that we are redeemed. This is a reminder of how serious our sin is. You know, how do, how do you tell someone how serious a surgery was? You say, well, they were in there for 11 hours, and there were four experts in there that, that, that were specialists in their field and, and it took forever. Or, or how, how, do you, how do you tell someone how serious an accident by your house was? You say there were, there were four ambulances that roped the whole area off. A fire truck came. It took four hours. Well, we see in how far Jesus went, in the, the lengths he would go to save us from our sin, how serious our bondage was. In fact, I don't want to steal my own thunder, but the beginning of chapter 2 the first three verses describe our current bondage. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." This is something even more serious than just doing the wrong things. You know, people say, how, how is it that God is so upset about sin? Especially when the New Testament uses the word that means missing the mark, often as the word for sin. I mean, I tried, I just, I missed. Can't God say, I'm proud of you anyway? You'll get better, nice try? These things are a symptom. You know, there's a sign on the door here like there is just about everywhere right now that says, if you have these things going on, uh, cough and shortness of breath, fever, you know, etc. 
maybe go home, don't come inside, quarantine yourself for a while, see a doctor, get a test. Why? I mean, your, your fever isn't going to be so hot that it affects me. My shortness of breath wouldn't affect you. You breathe through your own lungs. Well, no, the problem is these things are just symptoms of something much bigger and much more deadly and something that's kind of running rampant right now. And so we want to be careful about them. In the same way, sin is a symptom of the spiritual death in which we dwell that we read about at the beginning of chapter 2. It's a symptom of our being under the power of Satan and his kingdom and needing to be redeemed into the kingdom of light. And Christ was able to take our sins from us on the cross. He effectively wrapped his arms around each person who comes to him in faith and soaked our sins into himself and paid for them on the cross so that he bore both the symptoms and the sickness itself and did away with them. The death, the darkness, the separation from God. And he did it, we see in verse 7, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. According to the riches of his grace. God is rich in every way. He's rich in wisdom. He is he's rich in the standard way, owning the, the uh, cattle on a thousand hills. He's, he's rich in every way we can imagine, but Paul wants to shine the light on. He is rich in grace. And he says, I have so much, I will lavish it upon you. Lavish it upon you. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. This, I think, is something we might read over quickly. In fact, a lot of this, this opening stuff in Ephesians, you might read and go, mm, okay, got it, and not spend a lot of time taking it apart and asking yourself, but what does it mean? And what does it mean, therefore, for me? All wisdom and insight is given to us such that we will have revealed to us mysteries that were heretofore unknown. We will know and understand our God. This isn't just, here's some information uh, that you didn't have, now you have it. No, there's, there's a relational aspect here. We're adopted, we become his sons and daughters. And if you adopt a child, you don't want them to just know a little about you. You want them to know you and understand you, and you want to know them and understand them as well. And this is how we can love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because he gives us all insight and understanding to know who it is we believe and know who it is that we love and come to understand more and more why we love him. And this understanding overflows into praise. Just as we said last week that doctrine and, uh, and understanding overflows into doxology. And as our understanding grows, we even come to know mysteries. This is, this is a word that is kind of loaded in its original context. A mystery would be immediately a mystery religion or a mystery cult in the minds of the first century uh, Gentile reader. Most of the religions surrounding this part of the world were mystery religions or mystery cults, meaning that you gain insight into ancient hidden information about the cosmos, and you do it by ascending tier by tier through occult rituals into higher and higher levels of ethereal knowledge until you kind of master the universe. But then when we come to the New Testament and the word mystery is used, it's used in a very different way. In the New Testament, the word refers to something that was once obscure and is now revealed to us. 
In fact, you might want to write that in the margin of your Bible there, next to the word mystery. That in the New Testament, mystery refers to something previously hidden, now revealed. It was hidden, but now to us who are in Christ, it is revealed. That passage that Steve read for us from Daniel. Oh, there was a lot in there. I want to talk about it for a long time, but I'll I'll stop myself. I'll just point out that, first of all, Daniel says we're calling for deliverance, for redemption, not because we are righteous, but because of your mercy. We see that that scarlet thread continue into the New Testament. We see that he says uh, that that he's calling for insight and understanding, and then it is delivered to him by the angel who comes by way of answering his prayers. And then all of these things, these mysteries that are given to him are sealed up. And it's easy to read that and say, okay, I guess I'm not going to understand what this means until I die and go to heaven and I start you know, working through my list of questions that I've been compiling my whole life. Well, not so. In the book of Revelation, we see this sealed document being handed to John. He says, I can't, I can't open it. I want to know what it says. And he begins to weep. And he's told... The lion can open it. He turns and sees a lamb as one slain who then opens the seals on the document. These things are revealed to us now in Christ. This is what we call progressive revelation. This is how you should understand the way the Bible works. It starts more obscure and then it slowly pulls back the veil to reveal more and more. In Genesis 3.15, we get the first glimpse. There will be a redeemer. It's going to be someone who is born of a woman. That narrows it down. And it's going to be someone who's going to crush the head of the snake. It's going to make all things right, in a sense. And then, slowly, over the course of the Old Testament, that veil is pulled back a bit at a time until, in Christ, it is now unveiled to us. It's revealed to us. In fact, the book of Revelation is called the book of Revelation for a reason. It's, it's wild to me when I see billboards certain times of year for uh, a thing called Revelation Unleashed or Uncovered or Revealed or Unveiled or any of these things that are just synonyms for Revelation. It's already Revelation. It's already it's the revealing itself showing us that in Christ all of these things have been fulfilled for us. The mystery revealed through all wisdom and insight given by God. And again, this tells us this is not just here, read this, now you know it's something we experience. There's an internal and an external aspect to this. The internal is God's Spirit illuminating the truth to us and applying it to our hearts. So I guess in that sense, the mystery of the Gospel also requires an initiation, but it's a one-time initiation and it is simply saying, I believe in you, Jesus. I turn from my sin and being born again. At which time the mystery of the Gospel is opened wide to you. I've known many people who've told me, you know, I thought that I was a Christian then I realized one day I just knew about God. I didn't know Him. It's a guy I listened to sometimes on the radio, Todd Friel. He was in seminary studying to be a pastor and realized, I'm not a Christian. I'm lost. I know a lot about God. I don't know Him. I, I, I know about the mystery. I could, I could explain it to you. You might not even know I was faking it, but I haven't experienced it. I don't know it in the biblical sense if you will. And we're told here that part of the reason that we're prompted to give thanks for our redemption is because we know Him. And we know these things to be true. We have them, we've received them, and we are experiencing them even now. 
Verse 9 tells us these happen according to the will of God, just like last week, our, our predestination in Him before the foundation of the world was according to the purpose of His will. Here, the revealing of His plan of redemption and the carrying out of His plan of redemption is also according to His will. This isn't something that we make happen. It's something that God is doing in us. In fact, this, this tells us that if there's anything Jesus tells us, anything Jesus does for us, anything that following Jesus should cause us to immediately understand, it's first and foremost that to follow him, we have to let go of our own purposes for ourselves, our own master plan for our lives, our own sovereign will for what my life will be like, and to take up our cross and follow him according to his will, which is an eternal will. In fact, he speaks here of this plan being in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time. Verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. I've heard it uh, suggested that maybe the way to, to uh, translate that is when the times are ripe. I think that, that misses the mystery involved here. That we're talking not only about this moment of the cross being the absolute peak and climax of human history, but also that it is the, the access of time where, where God's plan for eternity runs into and intersects the unfolding history of all creation. Things in heaven and things on earth, as we're told. And this ought to change the way we view our lives, our situation, our struggles, our world. John Stott put it this way. At this point... It may be wise to pause a moment and consider how much all of us needs to develop Paul's broad perspective. Let me remind you that he was a prisoner in Rome, handcuffed to a Roman soldier. Yet, though his wrist was chained and his body confined, his heart and mind inhabited eternity. He peered back before the foundations of the world and on to the fullness of time and grasped hold of what we have now and ought to be now in light of those two eternities. And yet, how narrow are our horizons. How easily and naturally we slip into a preoccupation with our own petty little affairs. We need to see time in light of eternity and how true that is. We, we so often tend to have our, our gaze so narrow that we only see the struggles that we have today. We only see the situation, a snapshot in the moment. Even the way we look at the privileges we have in Christ today, without even a bit of peripheral vision to what God has done in eternity past and the future that he has promised us. And all of these things, this plan in the fullness of time, an eternal plan, is all pointed at one end result, we're told here, that he would unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. I remember I saw a t-shirt one time that said, bad spellers of the world untie. Is that funny? Thank you, Lisa. And I say that because at the very beginning, I told you the most important word was untie, luo, release, unbond, unbound, and here we see that the goal of this untying is uniting. And it's an interesting word that he uses here. In fact, the only other time we see it in the New Testament is in Romans 13, when Paul says that you could sum up all of the law under this one heading. 
It's kind of the notion of putting a whole bunch of values in a column, and, and then, you know, in the old days, you'd put a green eye shade on. This is how Richard made his living. And he got out the adding machine, it was like, clack, 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 clack. I imagine there was steam and stuff. I don't know. But now, you just put it in Excel, you click the little sigma, gives you the, the total, the sum. It adds everything up. You know, in our world, it seems like there's an awful lot of things that don't add up now. And God is going to, in Christ... Bring all those things into some. He's going to unite all things under himself. This is about church unity, but so much more as well. You know, think about something right now, something specific that just doesn't add up in our world, some kind of chaos or disorder, something that, that you just say day after day, God, why don't, you, why don't you fix this? And think about what it would look like for that to be brought under the headship of Christ into harmony with God's plan. Hope for that. We have reason to hope for that. That all things, that's a very broad category, all things will be united under Him. What he has most clearly in view here, I believe, is the Jew-Gentile division within the church. This is where he's going to go with the book of Ephesians. He's talking about uh, kind of cultural slash ethnic division going on in the church. And that's something that he is going to see brought under Christ together in unity. But he still says all things. In fact, there's a companion book to this book of Ephesians called Colossians. Very, very similar. A lot of the same language. And in that one, he says, through Christ, God reconciled all things unto himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This is what was concealed in the Old Testament, now revealed in Christ. That Jesus came to unite the fractured fragments of his broken creation. To restore the perfect shalom that was present at the beginning when he said, this is good, I made it, and it's very good. That he came to restore that, that was, that was forfeit in the garden by our sin and has been shunned by us ever since by yet more sin. All things will be brought together under him. All will be subject to, and this includes all people. And we, we've read in the scriptures that when he comes, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, just by being overwhelmed by the sheer majesty of his presence. But now those of us who bow our knee willingly can thank Him for the redemption we have in Him. This mystery that is so clearly illustrated in the coming together of two mountains, two peoples, two nations, Jews and Gentiles becoming one, should be front and center for us as well. We live in a time when there is a lot of fragmentation. People are on opposite sides of this issue and that issue. People are angry over here about this and then they're angry over here about this. And we need to remember that we serve a God who sent His Son Jesus to come and pay the ultimate price to redeem us toward the end goal of all things being united under Jesus. Are we keeping that in view? Uniting under Jesus. It's easy to say, well, I'm a Christian, they're a Christian. I'm sure in eternity we'll have some great conversations, but for now, we are at odds. we got nothing in common, and we certainly couldn't have any real meaningful fellowship. Listen, there's nothing in the Scriptures that gives us that opportunity, that gives us that out. 
No, it, it, we have to view these things through the lens of the gospel. It's becoming more and more common, I think, to actually to, to view the gospel through the, the lens of our sociological or political or cultural uh, preferences and say, okay, that's the kind of gospel that I proclaim. That's the kind of Jesus that I follow. He's sort of in line with me. But God's plan is a plan for the fullness of time. And through it, time merges with eternity. How stupid and foolish and arrogant for us to view an eternal plan through the grid of this flash of time and space that we happen to inhabit right now. We have to repent of that and to say, Lord, help me to view every aspect of my life through the lens of the gospel. Not the gospel through the lens of all my preferences and affiliations. Once we start doing that, we may see more unity in the church. You know, it's, it's, I would think about you know, a trip that you take, say, to Europe. Doesn't that sound nice? Don't get too excited. You can't go. But someday you'll be able to go. And what if you booked a, a flight to Europe and you were at the airport, you had your bags, you were ready to go, and they said, oh, your flight's been delayed six hours. And you said, oh, goodness. All right, well, I guess I'm going to go and I'm going to buy some food, and you got one of those wraps, because that always seems like the safest thing at the airport, and the lettuce was all gross and wilted, and the thing tasted like rubber. And then later on, you're looking back at your trip to Europe, and you went to London, and you went to Paris, and it all blew your mind, and someone says, tell me about it. You say, well, there was this moment in the airport, and I was eating a wrap, and it tasted like rubber, and the lettuce was all wilty. What else do you want to know? No, you're not going to, you're not going to, even when that's that moment in time, that little snip that you happen to be uh, experiencing, you tell yourself, no, there's more to this. This is a one little part of something big. And yes, this is difficult. And yes, this is disappointing. But we have to remember there's an end goal in view. The same thing is true with the gospel. Christianity is a, a religion of redemption and restoration and reconciliation. And here we see that when Jesus came and died, he died so that we would be saved from our sins and ultimately that we would be unified in him. And of course, what's the end goal of looking at the gospel through the lens of all of our preferences and affiliations? It's, well, we're seeing it now. It's a very safe, very upbeat gospel with no redemption. A Jesus who doesn't die on a cross, and no blood, no sin, no judgment, nothing but some sort of vague notion of the, the parenthood of God and the siblinghood of man, and no one can be saved by it. That's false unity. Lowest common denominator unity. No, when we see true unity around the cross of Jesus, true unity rooted in what Jesus has done for us, now more than ever, this will help us to bring the gospel to the nations. During a time when people are at odds and angry and everyone's divided into factions and, and backed up into corners and snarling at each other, if the church were to walk into the middle of that with a message of love and grace and mercy and a demonstration of true unity, what kind of revival could we see today? And you think about the fact that we are the light of the world. Light is great when it's diffused. You can see with it, but when you focus light, it becomes a laser and it becomes even more powerful. If we were able to focus together as the church of Jesus Christ, what might we accomplish? Are you praying for that now? Are you working toward that now? Now is the time for us to be doing just that. In Colossians 1, 
these same truths are summed up this way. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. In us is hope for the world. A hopeless world should be able to look at us and see not more vitriol with a different spin, but hope. Not more darkness, but light. And not a a bunch of demands and rules primarily, but grace and peace bought with the blood of Jesus. One of my favorite movies is uh, Miracle. It's a Disney movie. came out about 15 years ago about the Miracle on Ice. I don't love sports, but I love sports movies. I'm a complicated cat. And, and there's one part of it that, that really gets me, and that's that they get 26 guys at the first tryouts. And they're going to the Olympics. And they're going to beat the Soviets, and they're going to do all this amazing stuff. And they all go through just grueling, grueling practices for weeks and weeks, and they're throwing up and all this stuff. They're just at the end of their, their abilities, and they're, they're being broken down. But this running thing going on is that when they get to the Olympics, they can only have 20 on the team. And so every once in a while, there's a scene where Kurt Russell in those horrible pants calls somebody into his office, and he's like, I'm sorry, you got to go. And, they, and, and they, they save the guy, the character that you love the most for last. And he calls him in, and he says... I gotta, I gotta let you go. You can't come with us to Lake Placid. And the guy says, thanks for the chance. And the coach says, thank you for giving me your very best. And then he turns and walks out. And I thought to myself, the last time I watched it, that's so much like the world's religion. That's so much like man-centered religion that says, try hard, try hard, push yourself to the limit, be as righteous as you can, give your very best. And at the end of the day, God might still say, can't bring you with me to heaven, but thanks for giving me your very best. This is the message of the gospel. Jesus made the team for us. Jesus did his very best, which is full righteousness, ultimate sacrifice and selflessness, humility that we can't even begin to comprehend. And on the basis of that, our ransom has been paid. Mine has. Has yours? Has your ransom been paid? Have you put your faith in Jesus and accepted the grace that is offered in the gospel? Have your knots been untied, your chains broken? If not, this moment is a great moment to believe on Him, to put your faith in Him, to say to Him, Jesus, I know all of my efforts, I know all of my struggles, all of my greatest righteousness doesn't even get me close. You'd have a better shot of making that Olympic hockey team than you would of getting yourself into heaven on your own merits. But all we need to say to him is, please pay my ransom, set me free, and I will follow you. Heavenly Father, I do pray if there's anyone here who has not put their faith in Jesus that you would indeed reach out to them and and break their heart and change it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And Lord, draw them to yourself. We pray, Lord, that we would leave this place, all of us, having been redeemed, having been spoken for in Jesus, having, having our ransom paid so that we are no longer bond slaves to sin. We are no longer dwelling in spiritual darkness and death. But Lord, we are walking in the light, in true life, life more abundant. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.